You're listening to The Tool Belt, a manufacturing podcast focusing on logistics, safety, operations, and breaking industry news. Please enjoy this recording of our December 20th live stream. Hello, good morning or good afternoon, depending on that time zone. This is Robert Schoenberger with Industry Week, and welcome to Production Pulse, our bi-weekly live stream where we talk about news important to the manufacturing world. Uh, today, we are going to present a panel discussion with uh, some of the best and brightest from Endeavor Business Media, our parent company. Uh, we have editors covering manufacturing from a lot of different angles, and uh, we're going to share our insights from what was driving 2023 and what to expect in 2024. Uh, our panel today is uh, Karen Langhauser, who is with Pharma Manufacturing, so covering that pharmaceutical world. Lynn Sherwin is with Plastics Machinery and Manufacturing. John Katz is with Chemical Processing. And Anna Townsend has a dual role. She works both for our Control Design publication and Plant Services. Uh, so Control Design working on that uh, intersection of where machines actually get their instructions and. Uh, plant services covering uh, asset management and maintenance and uh, other topics about how to keep that plant running. So welcome everyone. Thanks for joining me today. Hello. Hi. Thanks, Robert. So uh, it's going to be a pretty simple form today. We have two giant questions. One was what, what were the big drivers in 2023? How did we get to where we are in manufacturing? And for that, I'd like to start with you, Karen, just uh, from your point of view in the pharmaceutical world, what, what were the big stories, what were the big drivers in 2023? Sure. Um, well, thanks for having us on the panel, even if it's um, because we're the only editors left in the office right now, but <laughs> <laughs> best, brightest, and the only ones here. <laughs> so um, in the US, uh, there are a few government-driven initiatives right now that are really kind of disrupting the way the pharma industry traditionally does business. So. One of these is the tenant of the Inflation Reduction Act that looks to lower prescription drug costs by allowing uh, Medicare to negotiate prices with drug companies and by putting an inflationary cap on prices. So if the prices of certain drugs covered under Medicare rise at a rate that exceeds inflation, drug makers have to pay a rebate back to the government. And there's been a lot of backlash already from the pharma industry, um, including companies uh, Merck, J&J, Bristol-Myers, uh, launching lawsuits against the government, um, arguing that the law is unconstitutional. Um, the second big initiative that's affecting the pharma industry is the Federal Trade Commission's uh, more aggressive stance on pharma mergers. So uh, back in uh, 2021, the FTC kind of vowed that it was going to take a new approach to what it deems uh, anti-competitive pharma deals. And it really followed through on that this year. Um, the FTC filed a lawsuit earlier this year to attempt to block Amgen's uh, $27 billion buyout of uh, Horizon, and that deal uh, eventually closed in October, but only after Amgen agreed to some of the FTC's settlement terms. Uh, the agency also took aim at Pfizer's acquisition of Cision, and that deal closed only recently um, after Pfizer agreed to donate royalties for one of the drugs that was in question. Um, so. If you look at both of these initiatives from the farm industry's perspective, um, there are two main ways that drug makers develop innovative new therapies by reinvesting revenue from drug sales back into R&D and through acquiring new therapies and new companies. So the IRA and the FTC changes affect both of these avenues for innovation. 
Yeah, we've definitely seen some changes in the regulatory environment at Industry Week, and uh, you know, the 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 big one probably lately being for us the uh, the cybersecurity reporting requirements, which uh, has led to a lot of uh, more more public knowledge of how bad the cyber breaches have been in recent years. Uh, so yeah, a different regulatory environment. Uh, that's good, Tristan. Uh, Lynn, let's talk about uh, what, what you're seeing, the same sort of thing in the plastics world. Yeah, um, a bunch of the issues we're having in plastics are kind of common, I think, to a lot of manufacturing uh, sectors right now. We've got uh, dealing with the labor shortage, shortage of skilled workers who can operate these big machines. Uh, the, the workforce is graying. Uh, there's there's a lot of questions about how do you pass along this knowledge of these people who are who are uh, the boomers who are retiring. Uh, we had one figure that the Plastics Industry Associated Association provided to us where they think that about about 70 percent of the workforce is going to be uh, millennial or Gen Z within a couple of years. And that's a, a huge shift. I mean, right now, I think most of the people in the industry are 55 and up. So it's uh, that, that's a that's a big change going on. How do you grow your leadership? Uh, that's that's been a big discussion for us in training. Uh, a lot of companies are doing programs now with high schools and with trade schools where they're trying to, to uh, partner with them. They provide machines and and let these students learn with their hands on how to operate these. And some of them even graduate and go right into jobs, which is obviously a, a, a big uh, thing for the for a student to be able to have a job right out of school. Uh, another issue that uh, the industry is dealing with is the overcapacity problem. Uh, during the uh, pandemic, there was a lot of demand for things like uh, things like bottles for spray cleaners, things like uh, the the plastic canisters that that uh, wipes come in. That remember everybody was trying to get wipes, and then there's got to be something that that holds them. So there was a, a lot of investment in that. Uh, there was also things like uh, the things that people were buying because they had the the money to uh, for their houses, uh, furniture, um, construction materials, people building plastic decks, uh, people buying RVs to go traveling in. There's a lot of plastics in an RV. So there was a lot of investment in in machinery, and now a lot of that market has fallen off. And people are trying to figure out, well, what do I do with all of this capacity? Like there was uh, in, in February of 2020, first week, um, my boss and I visited a plant out in California that was making plastic uh, test kits. And we just kind of asked him, he's like, oh, what do you think is going to happen with this, this new virus that they're talking about? And he said, well, you know, we'll have to see and, and see what happens. And we called him back two months later. They had invested $3 million in seven new lines and had expanded their clean room by several thousand square feet. And now, now that that market is over, it's places like that that are looking for, for some, something else to do with all of that capacity. And then the, the big issue that even lay people understand in plastics is sustainability. Uh, there's that, the terrible perception that plastics are choking the planet, which it's hard to argue with when you see bags in trees and bottles in the ocean and stuff like that. Uh, so there are a lot of bans, a lot of other laws uh, There, people are or states are starting to introduce extended producer responsibility laws where the somebody like Coke that generates a lot of plastic would then have to pay money toward infrastructure for recycling all of that plastic. And uh, kind of we're kind of catching up to Europe where there's a lot more standards on things like that. And the industry is kind of realizing now that it has a problem. There are more advocacy things that are going on and 
all the good things that plastic can do, but then also more efforts into into making recycling better. Yeah, and John, this, this seems to kind of segue into some things you, you and I were talking about earlier. One on the uh, the overcapacity on the plastic side, there, you're, you're seeing some kind of over over storage in uh, the, the chemicals world, it sounds like. Uh, so some people overstocking uh, and also facing some sustainability issues. So if you could walk us through some of those issues facing the, plastic, uh, the uh, chemical processing world. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, in the chemical industry, when the pandemic started, a lot of the customers started to um, stock up on products, basically overstocking. And um, the industry right now um, is going through a destocking cycle. Um, Martha Gilcrest Moore, she's the chief economist with the American Chemistry Council. She um, she hosted a year-end outlook a few weeks ago, and she was talking about how um, how we're finally nearing the end of that cycle. So that um, that that's hope hopeful for the chemical industry. It looks like it'll be more toward the beginning of 2025 when uh, they reach that, and. Um, we uh, we actually polled our readers, and 20% said that supply chain issues have impacted their site significantly. So, um, obviously, supply chain issues continue to be an issue in the the chemical industry. Um, I'd actually talked, I'd spoken with a supply chain executive from Axo Novell, the paint manufacturer, and he had talk about how they're still only getting something around 60%, uh, I think upper 60% range on on-time deliveries. And they're trying to address that by, um, you know, expanding their supply network, um, having basically having backup suppliers. So, um, and yeah, um, the environmental aspects always an issue um, in the chemical industry. Um, we're hearing about, uh, I mean, pretty much every chemical manufacturer has a, a, a plan to cut emissions. Um, we're hearing more about uh, manufacturers trying to incorporate more bio-based feedstocks into their products, um, partnering with renewable energy suppliers and installing technologies to detect and, and monitor uh, emissions within their facilities. Um, and that, that also ties into regulations, which I would say is probably one of the, the biggest issue, if not the biggest issue the industry has uh, been dealing with for the well past several years now, or it's actually an issue they're always dealing with. And um, uh, I'm sure everybody's heard about uh, Forever Chemicals, um, that's uh, PFAS or I'm going I'm to try to get this right, per and polyfluoral alkyl substances. Um, and uh, there's there's uh, been a lot going on with that. Um, in September, the EPA released its final rule on PFAS reporting and record keeping requirements. And um, that rule removes some exemptions for PFAS reporting. Um, my understanding is that previously manufacturers that produced formulations with smaller amounts of PFAS didn't have to file these reporting forms and that rule has changed. Um, 
And uh, we, we actually have a regulatory columnist, Lynn Bergeson, who, who covers this very well. And, um, you know, she's talked about the impact that that could have on the supply chain. So, um, you know, I expect to hear more about that in the coming year as well. I shared uh, one of Lynn's more recent columns in the comments section here. So if anyone wants to read uh, her thoughts, I believe that's on the PFAS issue on, on some of those settlements and uh, some really good insight there from her. So, great. Thank you so much, John. Let's uh, move on. Last but not least, uh, Anna Townsend, uh, you, you, you have your feet in a couple different worlds. So why don't you talk a little bit about uh, both from that uh, machinery control design phase and also from that the plant operations, what you're seeing from, from 2023. Yeah, thanks. I always like hearing my colleagues very industry specific perspectives. You know, both my brands cover a narrow slice of manufacturing, but across all industries. So I'm coming with a little bit of a broader lens. Um, but I want to focus on something that Lynn talked about, which is workforce and the skills gap as it relates to equipment maintenance and the use of industrial automation. You know, so skills gap is a huge issue in every industry. It has been for a long time in manufacturing. I think one thing we're seeing change more and more is the nature of the skills gap. So it's not just about the large hole that the retiring industrial workforce is leaving, but it's also changing the nature of the current jobs. You know, they're changing very rapidly. They're changing sometimes continuously as operations are adopting new technology. Um, we all hear about upskilling, digital transformation. What that often means on the plant floor for equipment maintenance is very highly skilled and niche technicians. You know, often they need to be then trained in a specialty, which may be specific to an industry. So it's not always easy to fill those very niche positions. You know, and for some, it's been a question of whether they can or should fill those specialized roles or instead rely on vendor aftermarket services for, for providing their maintenance. So the way I see this translating for industrial for the industrial automation market and what we talk a lot about in control design is the democratization of technology. So an increasing focus on user friendly components and machines. Everything is easy to install, plug and play, drag and drop, where in essence, workers don't need as much controls engineering or programming knowledge to configure these new components or make changes to machines in the production line. You know, that's not to say that we're eliminating controls engineers, but they can focus on more challenging and complicated work. So again, the nature of their work is changing. Um, and in some cases, they're getting more work done with less, essentially. Um, in a way, that's also moving some of this technical expertise and knowledge further upstream on the production development supply chain, so to speak, where the vendors need that technical expert, they need those experts and know-how in order to make products more user-friendly in the first place. Yeah, it's definitely a trend we've been seeing in Industry Week as well. I mean, the, the number of uh, presentations that we've seen in the past year that are talking about low-code or no-code solutions, you know, giving uh, is, is all these great technical abilities to people who are not software engineers or not data scientists. That seems to be a really growing piece of the industry uh, because everyone wants to increase productivity as much as possible because, like we've a bunch of us have said, finding those people is harder and harder and harder. And that, that's really not even just amongst manufacturers. I talked to our friends over at Fleet Owner Magazine and hiring truck drivers is nearly impossible. Hiring sewer maintenance people, hiring dental technicians. We're just in a demographic spot in this country where there are fewer people entering the workforce, uh, not enough coming in to replace the ones who are retiring. And 
boy, labor and workforce are just going to be challenges for a very, very long time for all of us, I would think. Uh, which brings us to the second big question we're asking today, which is what's next? What's what, what, what are the big things you expect to see in 2024 based on what you're seeing so far and the interviews and the uh, conversations you've been having? So again, let's, let's stick with you, Anna. Uh, wh wh where do you see the market going? In the near sure. Future? So, you know, again, specifically looking at equipment maintenance and machine design, we see an increasing use of predictive maintenance technologies for equipment monitoring. So we're talking about things like ultrasound or vibration analysis, infrared thermography. You know, there's a big investment in these technologies as a way to get more out of your equipment and make it last longer. I um, mean, again, just to touch on my earlier point about workforce, those are really very highly skilled labor jobs that do that condition monitoring. Um, you know, just as a caveat, I would say PDM technologies are not super widely used across every aspect of an operation. You know, typically it's applied very strategically to the most critical assets or areas where, you know, there are known failure issues. Um, you know, and maybe to tie this in a little bit, some of my colleagues' industries, you know, in quality and safety intensive industries like pharmaceuticals or process um, chemical manufacturing, you know, a lot of times we see facilities in those industries running their equipment harder than other industries or burning through parts faster because they can't afford either for production, quality, or regulatory reasons, they can't afford that downtime to do typical maintenance. You know, and when operations are trying to squeeze more out of less PDM technologies can be a way to do that. Um, we are starting to see, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence added on top of PDM. You know, over time, I think that will take over more and more tasks. But for now, much like PDM, um, AI is really being applied in very specific applications. Um, as manufacturers kind of exploring those capabilities. On the machine automation side, I would just point to, I think, the growing market for new business models such as uh, machines as a service, maintenance as a service, whatever you want to call it. You know, this means facilities aren't having to make that big upfront CapEx spend for new equipment. You know, they're essentially renting equipment or machines from the machine builders. In some cases, they're paying a monthly or a subscription fee, uh, but there are also models based on production output. So production as a service. You know, and obviously the big takeaway there in terms of maintenance is that facilities are no longer responsible for that uh, maintenance. It comes as a service. Yeah, we, we've had quite a bit of uh, attention paid to that as well. Uh, robots as a service was one I didn't really think would take off the first time I heard it, but we've heard uh, several companies saying that they're successfully implementing this. And boy, when you can't find people, robotics sound a lot more uh, attractive. So we'll, we'll see if uh, that does uh, become a bigger trend in the, in the new year. Uh, Jonathan, moving over to you in, in chemical processing. I mean, we, you've talked about the oversupply. You're kind of in a destocking phase. How is that going to affect uh, 2024? Yeah, well, um, I kind of wanted to um... Anna was talking about digitalization, and that's an interesting point for the, the chemical industry as well, because historically the chemical industry has been slow to adopt digital technologies, but um, we're, hearing, we're hearing more uh, about uh, more plants adopting some of these technologies like artificial intelligence. Um, I, um, I actually sat in on a, a webinar a while back um, where they were talking about the potential for generative AI um, to help with things like product development, identifying new molecules um, that might be more um, environmentally friendly. So 
Um, it'll be interesting to see how, how that expands in the upcoming year. Um, I think we'll be hearing about more plants adopting uh, digital technologies to improve the efficiency of their plants and to um, you know, help with maintenance, um, predictive maintenance, and um, just improve their overall operations. Um, I think some other things to look forward to is um, uh, clean hydrogen. Um, you know, we're hearing more about uh, uh, investment in clean hydrogen, um, the chemical industry is directly involved in the production of hydrogen, but it also uses hydrogen as a feedstock. So, um, you know, the Biden administration announced um, in October that um, under the bipartisan infrastructure law, it's going to fund um, these regional, um, I think the regional hydrogen hubs um, that lever leverage existing capabilities in different regions to produce hydrogen. So, I'd expect the chemical industry to be involved in, in that as well. Um, and then obviously the, the election looms large. The industry has been critical of the, the current administration, the American Chemistry Council in particular, saying that there's been a lot of regulatory overreach. So um, it'll be interesting to see how, how that plays out and what impact that could have, the election could have on the, the industry as well. I think a lot of us will be paying a lot of attention to politics in the new year. It's uh, yeah, the, the rhetoric is going to be pretty extreme, I assume, and it should, should be uh, interesting to watch. Uh, Karen, on the pharmaceutical side, I assume uh, the, the election and the regulatory environment are still going to be uh, pretty, pretty big issues for you as well. Yeah, I mean, especially in an election year, like you have to look at what what is capturing um, public and political attention. And even if that's not necessarily the biggest issue facing the pharma industry, um, and, and one of those for pharma is certainly drug pricing. Um, you know, it's drug pricing in the pharma industry is very complicated. It's not well understood. And I, I count myself among those who don't fully understand drug pricing. So uh, a big component to this is going to be a push for just more transparency. So you know, on the state level, you could see uh, stricter uh, DPT, the drug pricing transparency laws. Like basically these laws have to, pharma companies have to inform the public when they're increasing their prices, by how much, why they're increasing their prices. Uh, I think some of the states refer to it as the shame and blame system. Um, and uh, the industry, you know, the industry is going to face federal involvement, too, on that end, like I mentioned before, with the Medicare negotiation clause in the in the IRA. And that's probably just the tip of the iceberg. So um, and, and I think it's important to point out that tackling drug prices is it's more than just a, a PR issue. Right. Because as you see more and more complex therapies getting approval. I mean, this year there were historic cell and gene therapy approvals. Um, just earlier in December, we had two uh, approvals for sickle cell disease on the same day. So as these very, very, very multi-million dollar um, price tag drugs move out of these rare niche um, spaces and into bigger um, patient populations, you have to consider that um, our payment models in the US can't support drugs that are $4 million per, per dose. So how this manifests on the manufacturing side and how it will continue to manifest is, you know, a lot of what um, my colleagues were talking about too, with a lot of automation, like 
experiment, you see a lot of pharma manufacturers experimenting with AI where it could like cut down on waste and, and save time, you know, basically just prioritizing technology that increases efficiency and kind of reduces any, any sort of waste. Yeah, and when we were talking about this, uh, kind of segueing a little bit into Lim, but I want to get your take on this first, Karen. Is that, you know, we, we talk about the environmental uh, push in a lot of areas, the regulatory pushes, you know, reduce plastics, reduce waste. Uh, there's a very different take on that in the pharmaceutical world where plastic is uh, a very important substance for uh, maintaining uh, safety and, and, and uh, cleanliness. So can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a trade off, you know, in defense of single use plastics, right? It's that's the most cost effective way for the industry to manufacture aseptic drugs. So they single use components are going to offer a level of flexibility, scalability, cleanliness that would essentially be impossible to achieve with um, stainless steel. So um, and, and like we talked about in the pandemic, too, it's like there was such a need for speed and reallocating spaces um, for vaccine production that single use components were, were the answer to getting stuff done as fast and as safe as possible. So, you know, from an environmental perspective, yeah, like you have higher amounts of solid plastic waste, but there's a trade-off because you're using less water and you're using less chemicals and you're reducing your chance of the waste that would be associated with contamination. So, I mean, that being said, the pharma industry has a massive carbon footprint. I think a study came out a couple of years ago that actually said the carbon emissions in the farm industry were higher than the automotive industry. So historically, um, pharma's kind of gotten a pass on that. Um, but that's already changing in Europe. It's going to eventually change in the U.S. too. So I think a lot of the forward thinking companies are starting to, you know, work through greener ways of processing and more recyclable packaging and just in anticipation of what's to come. Great. Uh, over to you, Lynn. I mean, again, single-use plastics from the plastics industry is, a, I assume, a, a different take than maybe some of us see in our, our niches. Yeah, but it's, it is a huge issue and, and a major uh, image problem for the industry. Um, is that the the uh, Plastics Industry Association is doing this new Recycling is Real program where they're showing where how recycling is working in real time. Uh, but part of the problem is kind of a lack of will for building any kind of infrastructure for any kind of national infrastructure for recycling. It's like every every municipality has its own rules and you know you can recycle this here and you can recycle that there. And there's not enough of the, the facilities to collect and process and turn it back into a renewable plastic right now. It's, it's like there's there a lot of companies have goals that they want to meet about including a certain amount of recycled content. But sometimes they just can't get the recycled content because it's not being collected. It's not being processed. Uh, and, you know, and some of it is that people just don't just aren't willing to do any hard work to recycle. They just want to throw everything in one bin and let somebody else worry about it. So, yeah, that's definitely an issue. Um, there's there's a lot more talk about sustainable materials that are more like uh, biomaterials that are are grown from from bacteria or from from plant materials or things like that. Things that are compostable. But although compostable doesn't necessarily mean you can throw it in your backyard compost bin, it might need a professional composting facility. There's just so much confusion and so many different rules about recycling right now that there, 
there needs to be more of a unified message to make it work better. And as Karen was saying, they're, they're doing this in Europe and it's, it, it will take some political will to get it done here. <laughs> um, I mean, kind of some other, other trends that we're dealing with. Uh, we just did our, uh, our annual survey. Uh, PMM always surveys our, uh, our readership to see what kind of investments they're making in the upcoming year. And that gives us kind of a nice snapshot of what people are thinking about. Uh, that it this year it reflects that overcapacity problem uh, that not a lot of people are buying primary equipment, but they're buying a lot of automation and a lot of uh, auxiliaries, things like that, that'll make things more efficient. Um, and the other big thing that's kind of kind of looming on the horizon is the return of NPE, which is the biggest plastic show in, in the Americas. And it hasn't happened for six years. It only happens every third year because it's so massive. I mean, they bring in these gigantic million dollar machines and run stuff all day and all night. And you get to kind of kick the tires and see see what's new and exciting. And the the uh, equipment makers have have really, they think, suffered because we haven't had an NPE for all this time. And so they're looking forward to getting everybody together and, and trying to make some sales down there. I mean, but again, we'll see if if you don't have enough enough uh, programs to run on your current machinery, then you're probably not going to buy something new. So we'll see what happens after that, after that takes place in May. There's a lot of eyes on that. Right. Uh, you know, here from the industry week uh, perspective, we're still uh, hearing from some companies about things that they're expecting for the new year. I mean, I, I'm echoing a lot of what other people have said here today that there's, um, you know, there's some expectation that interest rates will go down in the new year because inflation has slowed considerably in recent months, uh, which oddly could work as a disincentive against uh, investing right now. Because if you want to hold out for a few more months, maybe you'll get a lower interest rate. And on a you know five million dollar piece of equipment or a fifteen million dollar expansion, you know, a half a percentage point on the interest rate can make a really big difference over the financing of that project. Um, but it, we've just been in a very strange economic space for quite a while now. We're, we're we're not seeing explosive growth. We're not seeing any kind of collapse. Uh, there, there are lots of challenges out there, but uh, lots of solutions on the horizon as well. So it should be a very interesting year. Uh, we have some stories coming in the next few days about some of those predictions. Uh, we'll be sharing those. Uh, but thank you, everyone, for joining me today. It's been a pleasure uh, hearing from so many of my colleagues. Uh, Karen Langhauser with Pharma Manufacturing, Lynn Sherwin with uh, Plastics Machinery and Manufacturing, John Katz with Chemical Processing, and Anna Townsend with Control Design and Plant Services. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this will be our last production pulse of the year, and we will be back in three weeks instead of two. We're changing our schedule just a little bit. Uh, we'll be back the week of, I, I believe the next one will be on January 11th, and I'll have a topic for that, and we'll announce that on our social medias sometime in the next week or so. But thank you for joining me today, and have uh, happy holidays and a happy new year to everyone.